Good morning, everybody. Nice to see a good group inside. Those of you who uh, were afraid it would be too warm outside and you came in to get the air conditioning, I understand how you feel. Today, we are back to the prophet Hosea. We began our uh, study of this book last week. And uh, let's take just a minute to get caught up on what we looked at so far. We looked at the first couple of verses. And uh, here's a couple of things that we thought about. Hosea is a message about God's coming judgment on the kingdoms of Israel and Judah. It's not just a message of judgment. It's also a message of hope. But what hits you right out of the blocks is it's this message of judgment, very solemn. We saw that God's emotions are powerfully on display in the book of Hosea. I think it's one of its special contributions to the biblical canon that we get this emotional view of who God is. Remember last week we talked about Hosea as a book in which we come to experience God. At least that's the goal. And uh, I think we do that by getting in touch with God's emotions, powerfully portrayed in this image of prostitution and betrayal. Hosea is to marry a woman who is promiscuous and and to have that hanging over his marriage and his entire ministry as an object lesson to the people of Israel of what their relationship to God looks like. Now, I think this is is helpful and important. Uh, The Apostle James, for example, in the New Testament, picks up on this image of, of sin as prostitution. Why is that so critical? Well, it, it, it's critical, I think, in that it takes beyond the notion of sin as merely transgression of commandments. Now, that's important, too. Apostle John says sin is a transgression of the law. But, but if we only think of it that way, it seems a bit uh, abstract or clinical, uh, you know, Suppose you get pulled over by one of Souderton's finest because you've been driving too fast or you've run a light or something like that and, and you violated the law and of course you should be punished. And, uh, and so you're going to get a ticket, right? But it's not a big emotional thing beyond the shame of sitting there for 15 minutes while the cop has his flashers going so that all the world knows your violation. But beyond that, you get over it pretty quickly. And for the policeman, it's, it's like nothing. It's just part of his job, right? Uh, so we can think about God as, as a kind of cosmic policeman who just keeps a check on our violations, if that's the only way we think about sin, 
uh, we don't get the depth of the biblical presentation, but when we add in this notion of sin as spiritual unfaithfulness, as betrayal of the God who loves deeply, then we start getting in touch with what Hosea is trying to present to us. So I think it's a, it's a very important element of thinking about what sin is and how it affects our lives and how it affects God himself. And then we noted that Israel's idolatry is the result of a lack of uh, this Hebrew term hesed, which is often translated as loving kindness, uh, mercy, uh, but I, I like this translation, covenant faithfulness, because that ties in with the marriage theme, right? Uh, steadfast love is good too, you see it sometimes that way, but covenant faithfulness is what we're going to talk about, and we'll hear more about that as we go through this book. All right, today we want to talk about strange names, <coughs> the names of Hosea's children, and a strange message. So let's read a few verses here. When the Lord began to speak through Hosea, the Lord said to him, Go, marry a promiscuous woman and have children with her, for like an adulterous wife, this land is guilty of unfaithfulness to the Lord. So he married Gomer, daughter of Deblaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. Then the Lord said to Hosea, Call him Jezreel, because I will soon punish the house of Jehu for the massacre at Jezreel. And I will put an end to the kingdom of Israel. In that day I will break Israel's bow in the valley of Jezreel. Call him Jezreel. A place name, right? That's, that's what it is first. It's a, it's a place. Call him Souderton. Call him Percasy. No, call him Jezreel. Strange name, huh? And uh, if you look on the map here, we can locate it. I think we ought to be able to see it. Yeah, that's coming through pretty well. So we are in the northern kingdom. And uh, the top of the map is Lower Galilee, hill country, with the Sea of Galilee over here. Nazareth, where Jesus grew up, is just on the southern edge of those hills. And then uh, the Valley of Jezreel here, running southeast from uh, up around the current port of Haifa, uh, down to where it meets the Jordan Valley. On the southern side of the valley is a ridge, a range of hills, starting up here at Mount Carmel. That's where, uh, you remember some of these uh, names, right? Mount Carmel is where Elijah had his duel with the prophets of Baal. Now that's, that's generations before. They're worshiping Baal. We learn in Hosea that they're back worshiping Baal again. But that's the Carmel Range. If you follow it down along the valley, you come to uh, 
Megiddo, which is Armageddon later in the New Testament. You come to Mount Gilboa, that's where, that's where Saul and Jonathan fought the, Philippine, uh, the, the, the Philippines, the, the, the Philistines, and, uh, and died on Mount Gilboa, right? So a lot is going on there, and the same is true of the valley itself. It's a, a very important valley because it's, a, it's fertile, it's the, it's the breadbasket of Israel, and invaders will often hit that valley. So a lot of battles go on there. Uh, Deborah and Barak uh, defeat the armies of Sisera in Jezreel. Uh, Gideon and his 300 uh, rout the Midianites also in that valley. So a lot of stuff takes place there. Uh, modern day, now we're looking from the, the south toward the north. Uh, right in the center of the picture there is Mount Tabor. And uh, you can see it's beautiful rolling valley. In the distance are the hills of Galilee. So that's the place. Specific event, though, that took place is what is referenced in these verses. Call him Jezreel because I will soon punish the massacre of Jehu. Let me read it so I'm getting right. I will soon punish the house of Jehu for the massacre at Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of Israel. So, what are we talking about with the massacre of Jehu? A lot of history woven in here. Let's take a minute and try to sort this out. So, here is a partial list of the kings of Judah and the kings of Israel. Judah is on the right. You'll notice that the kings of Judah are all in purple. Solid, consistent color. Why? Because in Judah, the kingship of David and his son Solomon and all the rest continues unbroken right through to the collapse of Jerusalem in 587. So there's one dynasty, hence single color. Now, on the left side, the kings of Israel... We change colors. Why? Because Israel started, northern kingdom started in a rebellion against Rehoboam, civil war. We talked about that last week. And every few generations, there's a fresh rebellion or a coup, and you start a new dynasty. You start a new family of kings, and they last for four or five generations, and then somebody else rises up and bumps them off. So that's what's happening. So, on the, on the left side, as you go back a ways, you, you start this chart in the yellow with Omri. He's a general. He has a successful coup and starts a dynasty. His son is Ahab. Now, Ahab stands out. Ahab is the king when Elijah has the contest with the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. He is reputed as the worst king of the northern kingdom. Why? In part because he marries poorly. He marries Jezebel. 
She's an outsider to Israel. She brings with her her own worship of the Baals and a whole bunch of prophets, and they establish Baal worship in Israel. That's Elijah's day and the conflict there. But Ahab is, uh, is just a bad name, along with Jezebel. That dynasty continues down through Ahaz and then Joram. I pulled this chart off the internet and realized somehow they didn't put in Joram, so I snuck him in the side. But it goes on for four generations, and at the end of that, God sends a prophet to one of Ahab's generals by the name of Jehu. Jehu is a wild man. Uh, If you want to think in more modern terms, uh, you know of of General George Patton in the Second World War? Might have seen the movie Patton. Well, Jehu is George Patton. He is a wild and a dangerous guy, but he's the man that God chooses to bring judgment on the dynasty of Omri, especially on the house of Ahab and his descendants. And uh, so in 2 Kings 9, you get the story. Uh, Elisha the prophet sends one of his prophetic associates to go and meet with Omri and uh, tell him he's got a message for him from the Lord. So Omri arose, went into the house, and the prophet poured oil on his head and said to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I have anointed you king over the people of the Lord, even over Israel. You shall strike the house of Ahab, your master, that I may avenge the blood of my servants, the prophets, and the blood of all the servants of the Lord at the hand of Jezebel. And Elisha says, give him the message, and then open the door and run. (laughs) Which is just a great line, because Jehu is a wild man, and he is going to settle the issue of judgment on Ahab's house. And that's what happens uh, in 2 Kings 9 and 2 Kings 10. If you've never read it, you might want to, or maybe not. Uh, It is double R-rated for violence. It is brutal. But it's effective in destroying not only Ahab's household, but also Baal worship within Israel for a short time. Now, we know before very long, it comes back again because by Hosea's day, they're worshiping Baal once more. And that's the point here. Call him Jezreel. With all this recollection of the history of what took place there, especially Jehu's brutal suppression of Ahab's household. Call him Jezreel, because, says the Lord, I will soon punish the house of Jehu for the massacre at Jezreel. Now, I don't think that's the best translation, because what it suggests is that God is, has judged Ahab's household and descendant, and now he's going to judge Jehu, because Jehu massacred the descendants of Ahab. But as we've just seen, 
Jehu was commanded to do that. So the scholars wrestle with this saying, now what's going on here? And many of them decide that the real problem is not that Jehu brought judgment on the house of Ahab, but he did it in such a bloody and brutal manner. So now it's time for Jehu and his descendants to get their comeuppance. That's how many people read it. Uh, I think that's not the best translation. I think it's probably something more like this, that we ought to read it. I will soon punish the house of Jehu with the massacre at Jezreel. Uh, literally, it says, I will, I will soon visit the blood of Jezreel on the house of Jehu. I think that does not mean that Jehu was too brutal, although he certainly was brutal. I think what it means is that the descendants of Jehu didn't learn anything from the brutal judgment that hit Ahab's descendants. They learn nothing from it because after a few generations, they're right back to idolatry. They're right back to the same worship that Ahab's household got judged for. So very soon, the judgment that fell on the house of Ahab is going to fall on Jehu's descendants, the fourth in the line being Jeroboam II, who is the king now who's in charge and Hosea is prophesying against his kingdom. Judgment is going to fall once again, and it will fall not just on the king and his descendants, but it's going to fall on the whole kingdom of Israel. In Jezreel. Now, again, scholars aren't quite clear on how that is fulfilled. Uh, there's indication that Jeroboam II's son, whose name's Zechariah, that he is killed, he's assassinated in, the, in a town in the valley of Jezreel. So that's one possibility. The other is that about 20 years after that, the whole northern kingdom is destroyed and, uh, and the Assyrians invade and the big battle is in the valley of Jezreel. So, we're not quite clear on exactly the details, but within uh, Hosea's lifetime for sure, uh, the northern kingdom will be no more. Call him Jezreel, so that every time you call your son, every time you name him, people are reminded that Jezreel is a place of judgment, and judgment is coming. It is coming soon says the text. All right. Let's, uh, let's think about a second strange name here. What must have been a painful name. Gomer conceived again and gave birth to a daughter. Then the Lord said to Hosea, call her Lo-Ruhamah, which means not loved. Or maybe better, not pitied, not shown mercy. For I will no longer show love to Israel that I should at all forgive them. 
Yet I will show love to Judah, and I will save them, not by bow, sword, or battle, or by horses and horsemen, but I, the Lord their God, will save them. Call her Lo-Ruhamah. No compassion. This is an added word to the word of judgment, isn't it? Call him Jezreel because very soon the northern kingdom is not going to exist. Lord, can you do that? Are you not a merciful and compassionate God forgiving your people? Call her Lo-Ruhamah. No compassion. No pity. No mercy. It is beyond talk of that at this point. Time and again, the prophets have come. They've warned. They've challenged. They've spoken of God's love and concern for his people. And it's been ignored. So now the time comes for no compassion. No mercy. Judgment is now unavoidable. The end is near. It's possible for us to persist in our sinful ways to the point where judgment comes. There is no alternative. And such is the case with Israel. It's five minutes to midnight and nothing is going to Defer or delay the coming of the day of judgment. Very solemn here. Lo Ruhamah, no pity, no mercy. But, but, now we encounter for the first time in this book something that comes up over and over again, and it's, it's, uh, it's challenging enough when you read it. It's enough of a jolt that there are some scholars who read Hosea and say it's, uh, that somebody's been making changes, somebody's been interpolating, because you couldn't have this coming from one author. The message is too inconsistent. And it starts right here. And I want, to, you know, I want to wrap up this morning by looking at this. Judgment is unavoidable. Call her low ruhamah. <clears throat> no pity, no mercy. But judgment's not the last word. Uh, let me read these verses for you because they, they, uh, they challenge our understanding here so that you feel this contrast. Verse 6, call her Lo-Ruhamah, which means not love, for I will no longer show love to Israel, that I should at all forgive them. Yet I will show love to Judah and I will save them. Not by bow, sword, or battle, or by horses and horsemen, but I, the Lord their God, will save them. So, 
it sounds like in the NIV and most translations, it sounds like the Lord is saying, no pity, no mercy for Israel. They're done. They've pushed too hard. Judgment is coming. But I will show love to Judah, the southern kingdom, <clears throat> for the sake of David and because they aren't as corrupt yet, and I will, uh, I'll bring salvation to them, not by armies, sword, or battle, but, but I myself will save them. So we sense that contrast between Israel and Judah. But the contrast is really much sharper than this. So, here's the way it is in the NIV. Right? Verse 6 is the key there. I will no longer show love to Israel that I should at all forgive them. Yet, contrast, I will show love to Judah. Now, the striking thing that I bumped into, I wasn't aware of this, is that that phrase in yellow, that I should at all forgive them, is properly rendered in the Hebrew something like this. I will no longer show love to Israel, yet I will surely forgive them. And I will show love to Judah. In which case, it's not a contrast between Israel and Judah. It's a contrast between God's judgment, which is certainly going to happen. Lo ruhamah, no pity, no mercy. And yet this statement, I will surely forgive them. Now, you probably feel the jolt of that transition and understand why it is that virtually all Every translation I've looked at translates that the way the NIV does. I will no longer show love to Israel that I should at all forgive them. But that misses this jolting contrast that occurs here. What sense are we to make out of this? I will no longer show love to Israel, yet I will surely forgive them. Dwayne Garrett uh, has what I'm coming to regard as the, as the most satisfying commentary on the book of Hosea. He says at this point, this inconsistency is the language of the vexation of a broken heart. And it also reflects the mystery of a God whose ways are above our ways. <clears throat> You know, as I think about that, as I think about the picture of God in this situation as a a divine parent and the children of Israel as his children, you who have been parents, you are parents, uh, you know the frustration of having children that you love deeply, but who in various circumstances seem persistently to want to act in ways that are not in accord with your love. To live disobediently, to live ways that are even personally self-destructive for them, and to know the frustration that 
you can't do much about it. Or you do the best that you can and it's still rejected. That's vexation, isn't it? That's frustration. That's even anger. So that you find yourself angry with the people that you love. And it's, it's compatible, isn't it? <laughs> it's difficult. It's frustrating. But you understand how that can happen. All right, so God... Garrett is saying, God is speaking here in the language of the vexation of a broken heart. God who loves his people, who says, you will be my chief treasure out of all the nations of the earth, finds his people are always turning away, always going after other gods. So here's the language. No pity, no mercy, tough love, we call it, huh? Judgment's going to come. You're all going to go off to Assyria in captivity. It's going to be brutal on everybody. No mercy. Yet I will surely forgive them. Now, how, how can that be? You sense the tension? How how is that possibly going to happen? I suggest to you that that is a mystery that shows up not only in Hosea. We're going to see it again and again through Hosea. But it also is picked up by the other prophets. It's pretty consistent in all of the Old Testament prophets. This tension between judgment and deliverance. Between love and the wrath of God. And the puzzle is, the puzzle is, how is this ever going to work out? Well, remember that the Old Testament story is a story that is going someplace. Do you remember me saying that once or twice before? It's going someplace. It's going to a cross. It's going to a cross where the one true Israelite, the one who always did precisely what Yahweh desired of him, the one true Israelite took the burden of exile and judgment. He took it on himself. The book of Hebrews tells us that he suffered outside the gate. If you will, he was exiled so that Israel's exile might end so that your exile might end. He suffered that exile himself. And we come back to Hosea, eight centuries before, Hosea doesn't know how this is going to work out. 
And that's true of all the prophets. We get a few little intimations here and there, especially in the book of Isaiah. We get some intimations about how God can be the one who shows no mercy and yet says, I will surely forgive. And I will save, not by any human means, by horses or bow or sword or anything like that, but I myself will save them. This is what he does in the coming of Jesus, in his death on the cross. There's the deliverance, friends. There is the answer to the mystery of God's love and his grace, and at the same time, God's judgment and righteousness. They meet together at the cross where Jesus died, where he died for Israel, where he died for Judah, and where he died for all of us idolatrous Gentiles. That's good news. (laughs) That's good news to remind ourselves of as we go through a book that is very solemn, talking about the judgment of God that is coming. Well, so I trust and pray that you are one of those who understands and accepts that God's solution to your waywardness, your idolatry, your sin, that God's solution has already been provided and that you need only to reach out and accept it and trust in what he has given to us as a gift. Receive the love of God and receive it afresh today as we pray together. Lord, your mercy and your love astounds us even even as we hear this strange announcement, no mercy, no compassion, yet I will surely forgive. The mystery, God, that you are a holy God who judges sin, and yet you are the loving Father who provides a way for us to be forgiven, to be cleansed, to be restored. What an extraordinary purpose and plan. How wonderful is your love. Today, Lord, may we draw close to you. May we receive your gift of life through Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.